1: Welcome to According to Ayurveda and Yoga with your host, Anne Holliday. Ayurveda and yoga are often poorly understood, and there are many misconceptions about them. According to Ayurveda and Yoga is a series of shows on the concepts of this ancient knowledge of life and consciousness presented in a way which is easy to understand. Now, here is Anne Holliday.
2: Welcome to According to Ayurveda and Yoga. This is your host and holiday. The title of our program today is Food as Medicine. And what that means is that one of the best ways that we can take care of our health is to eat pure, organic, fresh food. And food according to our particular combination of the five elements or doshas. Everything we need comes into us by the way of food plants take in their energy from the sun and nutrition from the soil in which they grow. By eating the plants, the energy and nutrition is transferred to us and in turn is burned as energy. Our programs so far have been about the qualities of the five elements and how they affect the body, the mind and our spiritual nature. Last week in the show, Living in Harmony with Nature, Jeff Lawton, a permaculture expert, told us about his work educating and networking throughout the world on sustainable agriculture, which is undoubtedly the way of the future if humans and all other creatures, for that matter, are going to survive on this earth. He demonstrated that each and every one of us can do our part in preserving the purity of the five elements, but we need the knowledge and the awareness. Only we can change the chain of cause and effect. Our discussion this week is a natural progression from living in harmony with nature and is the first step to know the food we eat and to be aware of its source when we describe the quality of food, we generally mean its nutritional value or vitamin content. And of course, that is important to consider. But in Ayurveda, we talk about the tastes because the tastes are related to the five elements, air, ether, fire, water, and earth. Therefore, if we balance the tastes, we balance the five elements in our food. And in doing so, balance the five elements in the body. The discussion today will be on the six tastes, sweet, sour, salty, pungent, astringent, and bitter. All foods contain at least one of these tastes, and each one is essential for a healthy bodily function. If we have too much of a particular taste, say sweet, for instance, which is water and earth, if we already have too much water and earth in our constitution, then we will gain weight and have a weakened digestion. And similarly, if we have a vata constitution, which is too much ether and air, and we don't get enough of the sweet taste, then there will be symptoms of lightheadedness, dryness, and a lack of grounding. So, the tastes are not a one size fits all, as we will find out today in our program with my guest K.P. Kalsar from the USA. K.P. is an alternative healing expert, a dietitian and herbalist with over 40 years of experience, and is a well known figure in the field of Ayurveda. KP is founder of the International Integrative Educational Institute, and it is my great pleasure and honor to have you on our program today, KP. Welcome.
3: Hi, uh, Anne. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure to be here with you today.
2: Tell me, even though there is a heightened awareness of nutrition today, it seems to me that for the most part, we're just simply substituting proper food with nutritional supplements. Is this going to have the same benefit to health as eating proper food, do you think?
3: It's a very challenging situation because we now live in a world where our food is unlikely to have the micronutrients that it needs when the number one uh, mineral deficiency in America is magnesium, we know we have a problem because magnesium is in every green leaf. So all of these things are tools. Ultimately, food is the thing we should be eating to nourish ourselves, but we have to get food from a source that uh, includes soil that has all of those uh, nutrients that we need. It's very challenging.
2: Yeah, and the, I, and the food does not have the nutrition, the industrialized food as we discussed last week does not have the value as it did, uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago, even that recently.
3: Well, that's the problem. And uh, nutritional supplements can never absolutely make up the difference because putting something in a pill is always limited. And there are uh, dozens, if not hundreds, or maybe even thousands of chemicals from the natural world that we need to be healthy, many that we haven't even identified yet. And we've narrowed it down to 17 that we think are important. But there are numerous trace elements that we know are necessary, yet we have no standard for quantities that we have to consume, where to get them, how to get them, and like that. So they're just going unused. And gradually, we're uh, not supporting all of the um, enzyma- enzymes and cofactors in our body that are necessary to stay healthy.
2: And also, is, the body isn't going to assimilate a pill in the same way, is it, as it does a plant?
3: Well, that's absolutely true. And we're designed to live on food. So ultimately, we should uh, be able to stay healthy with some very basic things like food, fresh air, fresh water, exercise, human touch, which are the basis of our study in Ayurveda.
2: Yes. So I'd like to move on to discussing the, the six tastes. Um, let's start with the sweet taste, which is the earth and water elements. The sweet taste promotes the growth of tissues and it is nourishing. It adds bulk to the body and brings about contentment. But it also, in excess, causes weakness, laziness, heaviness, and weakness of the digestion. It's good to pacify vata and pitta, but is aggravating for kapha. We generally think of sugar as the main sweet taste, but there are others, aren't
3: there? well very much so we have things like natural sweeteners honey concentrated uh things from other plants like uh molasses uh, certainly various fruits but really we're not talking even about those added sweeteners we're talking about a very bland uh carbohydrate taste kind of a neutral taste that uh is uh, the major taste in proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. So if you chew a, uh, a bowl of wheat berries long enough, an underlying sweetness will come out as our body begins to convert those carbohydrates. And when Ayurveda is talking about sweet, we're talking about those basic building tastes. Sugar, in fact, is more like a drug, really. And even though it has uh, sweet taste, it's way overwhelming to the body, and the body doesn't process it properly.
2: No, it goes straight. It doesn't have the same... Uh, so what about dairy is also sweet, isn't it?:
3: Milk is sweet, uh, absolutely, and it 's a building of uh, food. Uh, it um, has very little of any other taste, really, so it does have protein carbohydrate and fat, all those things as macronutrients that we need.
2: And now, there's a lot of discussion about um, milk and dairy products today. A lot of people are turning away from it. Um, but, you know, in Ayurveda, it's it's one of the key things for for health that we take in, the elixir of the gods. But the milk that we get today isn't of the same quality, is it? That. Uh, straight from the cow, for instance. Well,
3: yeah, you know, that's certainly true. And The milk story is very, very complicated because there are so, so many factors. There's almost nothing that you can compare about the historical consumption of milk in India and modern-day consumption of milk in America. In the first place, The animal in India that we call a cow is actually a a cousin to a cow. It's not even the same animal. It's a different species. So you have a different milk from a different animal. Uh, It's raised with love on a farm, two or three cows at a time. It's grass-fed or it eats in its natural environment. Uh, The calf is allowed to uh, take the milk before the remainder is given to people. So the mother cow stays happy, all those things. And then milk is never consumed cold in Ayurveda. It's always... Uh, w- uh warmed up or prepared in some way, often with warming spices to make it more digestible. So they don't; it doesn't even resemble the same food, really. No.
2: What about the refining of uh, of uh, sugar and flour and rice?
3: Well, it makes those things into essentially drugs. We end up with uh, carbohydrates that are very rapidly. Uh, digested, which means it just goes right straight to the blood, whether it's from white rice, white wheat, flour, or uh, sugar. We have an insulin spike and then our body, sorry, a sugar spike, our body responds with an insulin spike. It's blasted back down and we just ride that roller coaster of that drug-like experience all day long. When these things are unrefined and we eat them in proper combinations at proper times with the proper digestive spices and such, we get a long, slow digestive release of the constituents, including the carbohydrates. We have a nice, even uh, blood sugar throughout the day. And they've worked very well for people since the dawn of agriculture. Uh, Now in the last just few years, we're seeing these issues with these refined things. And we're at about the third generation Uh, In uh, the industrialized world of people who've been born to malnourished mothers who lived like that and now we're just scraping the bottom of the barrel for micronutrients and uh, the good solid food.
2: Yeah, and uh, especially in the um, poorer countries, I mean, I understand that the World Health Organization has been trying to stop India and China to stop refining the rice because they're really only just eating sugar, like a bowl of sugar every time they have a bowl of rice and uh, they're not getting the nutrients that that nature provides in rice.
3: Well, very much so. And there's, again, so many factors. Before this generation, people in India and China used to live on grandma's lentil farm or barley farm and they were eating unrefined food on land that had been uh, farmed in such a way that the soils were amended consistently generation after generation. And they had uh, food with a broad spectrum of macro and micronutrients that Uh, nourish them. And now with increased industrialization and refinement and such, people are living on exactly as you suggested, a bowl of sugar followed by a glass of sugar.
2: Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, there's a big upsurge too in this uh, idea of gluten intolerance. Jeff was saying to us last week that because of the uh, genetic modification of wheat, there's uh, a lot more gluten in the wheat today, and uh, also, it was suggested to me when I was in Germany that the, the, the bread has got so many um, preservatives and additives in it that the body is rejecting all of that, and so the gluten gets sort of thrown the, 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 thrown away with the ba- like the baby in the bathwater. Is that how do you see that problem that we're having?
3: Well, I think the wheat problem is equally complicated as the milk problem, but everything you're suggesting contributes uh, to that. The way that the, the uh, wheat is prepared is certainly going to be a factor. The species of wheat, the uh, modification of the wheat, how people eat the wheat, the overconsumption of the wheat. Not only is it gluten, and yes, wheat has a lot more gluten now, uh, but there are numerous other similar proteins in the uh, in the wheat that are problematic. the The basic ideas from Ayurveda are to eat appropriate amounts of food, a wide variety of foods so that you get uh, access to all these various macronutrients and eat them in a way that's digestible. So the general Mm -hmm. take by current Ayurvedic authorities on the wheat situation is that it's mainly that people's digestive tracts aren't functioning well. Everything you've just mentioned is all absolutely true and contributes to the problem, but the more fundamental thing is that they have an underfunctioning digestive tract that's not secreting the necessary juices to digest not only wheat but anything else. Ayurveda recognizes that wheat is fundamentally a uh, heavy, sweet food that is exactly as you described it earlier, tissue building and um, stabilizing and stamina enhancing, but there's a limit and you have to have a strong digestive tract to be able to handle it. Many people have found that their wheat sensitivity, whether we call it gluten issues or whatever it may be, uh, is resolved when they start practicing Ayurvedic practices of enhancing their digestive fire.
2: Yes, yes. So let's talk about the sweet, uh, the sour taste now, which is the earth and the fire elements. The, uh, the sour taste aids digestion by promoting salivation, and it increases the digestive fire. But in excess, it causes burning sensations in the throat chest and heart and causes the retention of fluid. The sour taste pacifies vata but aggravates kapha and pitta.
3: Yes, that's right. So out of the six tastes uh, in the modern industrialized uh, diet, now I live in the United States so this is what I see, but we have a diet that's overwhelmingly composed of sweet, sour and salty tastes, a meal of french fries and ketchup. Uh, would be a great example of that. You have the sweet from the potato and the oil. You have the sour from the tomatoes in the ketchup. And then, of course, the salt that you add. What we don't eat is pungent, bitter, and astringent. Pungent Mm -hmm. food is becoming a little more popular with salsa and that sort of thing, but certainly no bitter and astringent. And all Mm -hmm. these tastes need to be balanced in proper proportions. So sour is uh, caused by the presence of organic acids, which can be from fermented foods or uh, things like citric acid, or ascorbic acid in, uh, in fruits. So that does enhance digestive function, but these first three tastes that we talked about are all anabolic or tissue-building uh, foods. And Ayurveda would say that our emphasis on those things, number one, is... Uh, inherited because we weren't able to get as many of those foods in the past. When you're wandering around the wilderness looking to eat roots and barks, they're largely pungent, bitter, and astringent. So when you come across anything sweet like seeds or berries, the body is uh, inherently wired to go for those and crave them and eat as much as possible. So we still have the, the bodies of um, wandering uh, scavengers, and but we live in a society that can give us as much oil, salt, and and uh you know donuts mm-hmm. as we want i guess our our two generation experiment with living on do- uh, donuts and coffee has not actually worked out so well so for a person that needs sour taste to enhance digestive function that's great but the other second reason that we crave these things is because in our fast paced society these anabolic foods are grounding and they make us gain weight which of course we see as What's been happening? So people instinctively go for things that stabilize them more when they're living in a world that's increasingly fast-paced with transportation and uh, visual stimulation and that sort of thing.
2: Okay. Yes. And uh, what about the cons- the overconsumption of wine? Because uh, wine is also a would you say that was a fermented food? Oh, a very sour much so. Food. Yeah. Yes.
3: You know, there's a and saying. That, in there's, it, go ahead. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's a saying in Ayurveda that uh, nothing is good for everybody and everything is good for somebody. So Ayurveda doesn't have blanket black and white rules about things and pretty much sees everything as a potential uh, medicine, food or poison depending on the person and the dose. So Ayurveda does have medicinal wines, um, herbal yes. preparations that are prepared so that the alcohol uh, preserves them, but they, you don't get intoxicated from them. And you consume maybe one or two ounces over the course of a day. So, digest uh, alcohol warms up the uh, digestion. Yeah, but the going- uh, the fundamental da- point is that it's poisonous, and if people overuse it, they end up uh, with problems. So, Ayurveda would say essentially none would be best, unless it's medicinal. But certainly to limit it.
2: Okay, KP, we're going to take a short break now and continue with this discussion in a few minutes.
1: The According to Ayurveda and Yoga Global community welcomes you to join the conversation at AtayTV.com, where you can share your experiences of holistic health, ask questions, make comments, and write blogs. It is through AtayTV.com that professional members committed to bringing authentic knowledge to the world can connect with you. Material from Atay radio shows are also available. ATAYTV.com Visit ATAYTV.com today.
0: and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sanjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business.
1: are listening to According to Ayurveda and Yoga with Anne Holliday. If you have questions or comments about our program, we would like to hear from you. Please contact us via email to info at ataytv.com. That's info at v.com. Now, back to According to Ayurveda and Yoga.
2: Welcome back. This is Anne Holliday and KP Kalsar, my guest today. We are talking about the six tastes and we're moving on now to talk about the salty taste, which is the water and fire elements. Salty promotes digestion, brings about the taste in food and is cleansing. In excess, Salt causes water retention, falling and graying of the hair, hyperacidity, and infections. Salt pacifies vata, but is aggravating for kapha and pitta. And I'd like to ask you, Kalsar, about table salt. I mean, we obviously all need a little bit of salt. It's very important, but... Uh, So much food today has got hidden salt and we're continuously consuming it um, without really realizing it. So to cook our own food really is very important, isn't it? So even if it's only just to control the
3: salt… Absolutely true. I would recommend that you have as much close control over your food as possible, and a grandma can certainly cook it, but otherwise uh, it's up to you. So salt is absolutely necessary, as you suggest, for human beings to be healthy, but it was very difficult for people to find in the past, and there was little salty taste in food. And so people, again, are very drawn to that, like we talked about with the sweet uh, taste. So, since we're biologically wired to go for it, we accommodate to it easily, and more and more and more. And several studies have shown that there's essentially no limit. People will continue salting their food in greater and greater amounts as they get more uh, used to it. Salt is uh, table salt, sodium chloride, is made of um, sodium and the chlorine, and the chlorine provides. Uh, the material for the body to make hydrochloric acid, the most digestive, most basic digestive uh, juice. And so we need it from that point of view. Here's another great example of where we can't use black and white thinking to... A great example of the idea in Ayurveda that you can't use black and white thinking and that one uh, solution isn't good for everybody. So, Anne, exactly as you suggested, salty taste is good for people with high vata because the sodium allows them to retain the water that their body needs to stay lubricated and moist as uh, appropriate. So many people, on the whole, people are eating way too much salt in industrialized countries. Uh, we would encourage people with high vata to just use salt their taste, uh, salt their food according to taste, and they should be fine uh people with high pitta or kappa should uh, be careful with salt and people with high kappa essentially should just not salt their their food at all and we do want to stay away from those refined uh processed foods that in- include all that extra salt at you know a quadruple overdose
2: and it's important to have mineral salt too isn't it so that you're getting more of the minerals as well and it's not as it, it isn't as salty either is it
3: there are many different types of uh, salts that can be used and some of them have more or less uh, sodium chloride and the other part is made up of other various uh, minerals. Commercial salt is also subject to numerous processes of uh, heating and bleaching and you know various other things that make it less desirable in general anyway. So we could mm-hmm. use some salts from the earth that uh, Himalayan pink salt and other similar kinds of things that would be healthier.
2: Yes. So let's move on now to the pungent taste, which is air and fire elements. The pungent taste improves our digestion. It helps to discharge oily and sticky waste products and is a germicidal. But in excess, it will cause weakness, thirst, emaciation and fainting. The pungent taste pacifies kapha and aggravates vata and pitta.
3: Pungent taste is the hottest of the six tastes, and that's really what we're talking about is that burning sensation. So pungent foods would be things like garlic and onions, uh, black pepper, chilies, ginger. And like everything else, we need this in some amount. Most Americans could do better with more pungent. So Ayurveda uh, encourages warming digestive aids for just about everybody, and those do have a pungent taste. So small amounts... Uh, with your meals of uh, ginger, black pepper, that sort of thing to stimulate digestive secretions. Of course, it's all individual, so that may not apply to every single person. These pungent tastes enhance circulation, promote digestion. The problem with Mm -hmm. pungent tastes is that it's drying. So for people, especially with high vata, because vata is the coldest dosha, we would think that warming foods and spices uh, would be good, but too much pungent is too drying and they end up being... um, yeah they lack of lubrication,
2: yes, and really in the in, in the India particularly I mean almost every food has garlic and peppers and these types of ginger and so on, and of course, but the majority of Indian people are kafir aren't they
3: well, uh, much more we, yeah we need to not uh confuse the average uh, Indian's person, Indian person's diet with some kind of knowledge of Ayurveda. Even though there is a sort of a basic folk knowledge of these ideas, uh, you know, at grandma's house, people don't eat according to these properties necessarily. So anybody might be eating in any way. And probably there is an overabundance of pungent food in India. Mm-hmm. And people who are who shouldn't really be eating food that that's pungent are anyway, because it's a cultural thing. If you go to an Ayurvedic restaurant in India, you'll be asked about yourself and then they'll prepare a diet for you that may be quite different than the restaurant next door that's serving the general public.
2: Mm -hmm. And what is the truth to not cooking black pepper into the food but to be sprinkled over the top?
3: You know, there are, uh, I I like to call Ayurveda the science of 10,000 persnickety rules and people have been studying this and writing things down for 5,000 years and so there's every opinion that you could imagine and Ayurveda monolith but it's practiced by consensus basically so any given oils would be more or less emphasized by any given person black pepper is the active ingredients in black pepper are fixed oils and essential oils and if you cook black pepper you lose some of those essential oils and so it's considered by some to sort of grade degrade oh. the, the black pepper and it's more mm-hmm. ideally more uh, sprinkled on top Top, yes. Yeah, the thing about this, all these ideas is I really don't want a perfect to be the enemy of the good. So uh, I would rather that people make some progress than hold back because they can't be perfect. Believe me, nobody can be Ayurvedically perfect. There wouldn't be enough hours in the day to do every procedure Ayurveda wants you to do. So I encourage people to think of it as a smorgasbord of possibilities and use those things that you can work into your life that will help you today yes. and move toward better rather than not do because you're not perfect.
2: Yes, a little bit is better than nothing, isn't it? That's right, exactly. Yes. And so now the bitter taste is air and the ether elements. And the bitter taste is detoxifying, antibacterial, germicidal. It reduces fever and is cleansing. But in excess, it causes vata diseases, its dryness and roughness of the vessels, and wasting. Pitter, bitter taste pacifies kapha and pitta and aggravates vata. And of course, the bitter taste is very important for uh, treat, treating uh, diabetes, isn't it?
3: Well, very much so. Di- type 2 diabetes is a cup of water where people expand, become wetter, slower, more lethargic, fatter. which are all conditions of kappa. So we started our second three tastes with pungent and now we're on to bitter and these are all catabolic tastes or tissue reducing and excess wasting taste and so people with high kappa want to concentrate on these three tastes. Bitter is the taste out of the six that's the least likely to be in the industrialized western diet. So we say in Ayurveda for westerners bitter is better. Very common in India to get bitter foods as part of your your meal. You might have bitter melon, which is a vegetable similar to a zucchini, but very, very bitter as part of your vegetable serving. Or you might have bitter spices. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
3: so bitter would be added in particular and to detoxify and it's part of what people are used to. But we're not naturally drawn to that because our bodies are... Um so people are not inclined to want to use... Uh, bitter taste. It's a bit of an acquired taste. So in India, uh, it's one of the six tastes that's commonly used and people are used to having it in their food. With uh, other Western folks, we have to encourage them to use it. But as people get more used to it, they get the benefits of these things. We're starting to see a little bit of bitter taste in gourmet kinds of situations where people are eating dandelion leaves in their salad and that sort of thing. So it's getting easier to convince people.
2: What about coffee? Coffee is not really a bitter taste, is it?
3: Well, it's said to be bitter. Uh, you know, when you look it up in the uh, in the literature, but really, people put cream and sugar in it and drink it. You know, espresso drinks and whatever. So, really, there we can't really think of it as being much of a, uh, a consumption of no. bitter. We're talking about turmeric and dandelion and rhubarb. Yes,
2: and that's probably the reason why turmeric is such a uh, um, a healthy thing to add to the diet. A, you know, a teaspoon a day they recommend.
3: Yeah, bitter is better all the way around for almost every person in a, in a uh, eating a Western diet.
2: Yeah. So there's just one more taste to go and that's the astringent taste, which is air and earth and is a sedative. It stops diarrhea and bleeding and promotes healing and the absorption of fluids. But in excess, it causes dryness of the mouth, constipation, retention of gas, and weakens the vitality. Astringent taste causes vata diseases and pacifies pitta and kapha. And this, the astringent taste, of course, is in beans, isn't it, and a lot of vegetables.
3: Astringent taste is the third of these catabolic tastes, and it's challenging to explain this taste to people because they're not used to thinking of it as a taste. It's a mouth feel. It's that puckery feeling when you eat something that dryness, dries out. Yeah. That's right, dries out your mouth. So we don't have great examples in the European and American diet, hardly at all. The examples you see in Ayurvedic literature are things like unripe banana, uh, you know, but. Uh, astringent taste is widely used. Turmeric itself is, in addition to being bitter, is astringent. So if you put a little turmeric in your mouth, it will pucker up your uh, your mouth, and you'll have that feeling of uh, dryness. Astringent uh, we use to treat anything that's uh, wet, uh, sloppy, sticking out too far, or leaking. So it could be bleeding from any parts of the body, uh, nose running, um, that sorts of things. So it contracts mm-hmm. the body, and it is uh, catabolic. So we want to use it for people whose bodies are too big, uh, like uh, people with excess kappa.
2: Yes, radishes and cranberries are on my list for – yeah. So we do have them. It's just that we don't necessarily appreciate them as being – astringent.
3: Well, that's right. In the United States, we eat cranberries one day a year, maybe two. So yes, cranberries would be a great example. If you munched a, a raw cranberry, you'd definitely taste the astringency.
2: Yes, yes. And what do you think about the combination of rice and beans as being an amino acid or is that just a, um, a theory?
3: Oh, rice and beans absolutely is a great uh, way to get in the combination of those uh, amino acids. Ayurveda doesn't talk about amino acids. Things are described in terms of these energies but we know from modern science that that's a good way to get those in. We also know from modern science that it's not essential to eat the amino acid combination all at once. You can eat them within a day or even two and you have an amino acid pool in your body that will. these amino acids will find each other over time as long as you eat enough of them over um, a span of days. So, Beans and rice are the ultimate rejuvenative, nutritive, healing food in Ayurveda and we would those would be a small bean like mung beans or lentils that would be much more digestible for people. Mm-hmm. And so that combination of a small bean and a well-cooked grain is the most basic healing diet in all of Ayurveda. It's used as a base for all kinds of medicines for rejuvenation. If you were in an Ayurvedic hospital, you'd eat some kind of bean and rice dish every meal uh, and your vegetables yeah. and medicines would be added to that.
2: Yes, it's interesting that most indigenous peoples have that combination, don't they? You know, the Mexicans have the rice and beans and and the Indians is, is always dal and rice together.
3: Right, some sort of a grain and some sort of a digestible bean that's cooked well enough so that you can digest it with spices. And we you see that over and over and over. Sometimes those things came from other places, but they've been established for centuries or millennia, uh, and they've kept people alive in agricultural societies for millennia.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, it's so interesting to uh, uh, delve into the the the, the Ayurvedic um Uh, principles because they've existed for such a long time, even though people haven't necessarily been aware of them. So it is so important to be aware of the taste in our food, especially at particular periods in our life. And also the temperature of our food, because we said, you know, that kaffir and vata are cold. So warmer foods are more appropriate for them. And uh, the Childhood is the kapha time, so when we need heavier foods and when we're older, we need uh, uh, we need heavier foods also for a different reason, but to pacify kapha. So we're going to stop there and uh, have a short break and then we'll get back and discuss some more issues related to food.
0: and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
1: The According to Ayurveda and Yoga Global community welcomes you to join the conversation at ataytv.com where you can share your experiences of holistic health, ask questions, make comments, and write blogs. It is through AtayTV.com that professional members committed to bringing authentic knowledge to the world can connect with you. Material from Ate radio shows are also available. AtayTV.com. Visit AtayTV.com today.
3: We are broadcasting from the Phoenix Studios at VoiceAmerica.com. Variety Channel, Going Global with Gas Man is the show that you are listening to. And joining me today is Sean Morley from the WWE, otherwise known as Val Venus, the big Val Boski.
0: Hello, ladies. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and he's also got a third identification as well. He Absolutely. is Captain Cannabis.
0: Live every
1: Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. Going global with gas. Man, how the hell do they know that I got gas? You are listening to According to Ayurveda and Yoga with Ann Holliday. If you have questions or comments about our program, we would like to hear from you. Please contact us via email to info at ataytv.com. That's info at ataytv.com. Now, back to According to Ayurveda and Yoga.
2: Welcome back. This is Anne Holliday in the final segment of our program on Food as Medicine with my guest, K.P. Kalsar. So, K.P., I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, vegetarianism, which um, is a, a... a, a common keystone of an Ayurvedic diet. We don't, of course, um, uh, go without meat altogether. It, meat is recommended for certain sicknesses. But there are some uh, fundamental reasons, aren't there, in Ayurveda, why we um, are vegetarian
3: well of course and there's uh, a wide variety of reasons from ethical moral spiritual uh, it's uh, meat consumption in excess is considered not to aid meditation which is the ultimate goal of uh, ayurveda for physical mental and spiritual uh, development but on a physical level meat is considered to be dense and difficult to digest so the bottom line rule in food in ayurveda is that you have to digest it if you don't digest it it ends up creating other problems and substances that end up going into your body that create diseases so we want food to be digestible. Uh, Meat is not likely to be digestible so Ayurveda is uh, focusing on vegetarian foods that are much more likely to be digested. If we even go back to the milk, Ayurveda doesn't recommend hard cheese for example for the same reason, Uh, not for moral reasons, it's willing to drink the milk that came from that same cow but the idea is to keep things digestible. So milk products are a source of protein in Ayurveda, nuts, and of course the bean and rice combination that you suggested. Those are fundamentally the combinations and can work very, very well for people uh, to maintain their good health as long as they digest those and it's not causing imbalances in their energies.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a big uh, movement toward vegan now, isn't that? And uh, it's probably a good thing in, with the way that animals are treated in factory farms now, uh, but uh, you have to be very aware when you are uh, go towards a vegan diet and you can't just give up animal products, can you?
3: Well, it's very true. Uh, I think a vegan diet can provide uh, a completely adequate Uh, food supply but you have to be careful so uh, that's a major source of protein and some minerals and things in the Ayurvedic diet it's interesting that when people who are not as familiar with Ayurveda as you might be uh, think about the Ayurvedic diet they think about massive consumption of milk because for example compared to traditional Chinese medicine that doesn't use any uh, people think that um, Ayurveda is um, just drenched in milk but in fact I have a cup of constitution and so milk products are really not that good for me just energetically. So I use very little milk products in my diet. A typical uh, Ayurvedic diet recommends a small serving of yogurt a couple of times a day, something like that, maybe a little spiced milk for certain people in the evening. And that's about it. It's not like people mm-hmm. are walking to the refrigerator and tipping back a, you know, a quart of milk. So even no. though milk is included in the diet for health reasons, it's pretty easy to make that transition to a vegan diet if people choose to and then they just have to be careful to make sure they're nourished.
2: And what about the uh, vitamin B12 which is only in animal products, isn't it?
3: Well, that's a bit of a concern and so there, there are again many divergent opinions on this issue and it's sort of not on our topic today but that is the way that Ayurveda recommends making sure that you get that vitamin. Uh, in your diet is including those small amounts of uh, milk products.
2: Yes, yes. Now, Ayurveda also is um, very um, aware of food combinations, particularly food that you've eaten and the post-digestive effect of, of combining different foods. Would you like to talk a little bit about that?
3: The idea is that your digestive tract should be functioning optimally and be able to digest the maximum nutrients from your food, break them down into their constituent pieces as quickly as possible, and get them out into your bloodstream and into your tissues. When we combine foods, it causes our digestive tract to have to secrete more of the different kinds of digestive juices than it otherwise would uh, in a, a simpler situation. So, Ayurveda commonly recommends relatively simple diets. So Mm -hmm. uh, protein and grain, we just talked about, uh, beans and rice, that's a fine combination. But sugar in general is a problem whether that's fruit sugar or anything else. So things that cause gas are problematic if they're combined together. So for example watermelon there's the, the water watermelon is the one food that all ayurvedists say eat it alone or leave it alone because it's the queen of the gas producers which is aggravates vata dosha. So if you really want to have a vata experience have a meal of garbanzo beans and watermelon and you'll know what we're talking about with food <laughs> combining. So protein yeah. and fruit protein and fruit not encouraged together. Most vegetables can be eaten together. Fruit typically is encouraged in ayurveda to be eaten alone perfectly fine to eat and you could have an entire meal of nothing but fruit. Uh, It could be a a, um, mid-afternoon snack. It could be a full lunch. One thing I want to mention about this idea of eating only fruit, which people do hear about in Ayurveda, is that most, uh, certainly Americans, I'm not sure about the rest of the English-speaking world, uh, have grown up using so much refined sugar that their sugar – Uh, maintenance metabolism is pretty wobbly and their body really just doesn't know how to manage almost any kind of sugar. So even sitting down to a full bowl of nothing but fruit for lunch can be problematic for people. That's enough. Even though it's fruit sugar and it's got a bunch of healthy vitamins, it's still enough sugar that it can cause that up and down sugar kind of effect. So even though every Ayurveda textbook will tell you to do that, you have to use your own Sense of yeah. how things react in your body to be able to make these decisions. Many Americans, at least, don't do well with that kind of fruit-centric serving.
2: Really? Yes. Um, uh, and what about the the, the raw food uh, fad too that we've got with the smoothies?
3: Again, Ayurveda is not black and white, so certain people can do well with raw food. Generally speaking, Ayurveda doesn't recommend concentrating on raw food and certainly not eating only raw food. Uh, Raw food is cooling. And uh, is more difficult to digest. So people with a very well-developed, hot, well-functioning digestive tract, people with high pitta, actually can do well with a diet that's mostly or all raw food because they can digest it and it cools them down. But for most people, it suppresses digestion. It's difficult to digest and they don't maximize their digestive consumption. So uh, pitta people can eat the most – Uh, raw food, kappa people, the next and vata people, generally speaking, we want them to stay away from raw food because it just turns to gas and creates more of the same problem that's their core issue
2: yes yes, and uh, and of course the making smoothies too, you should not mix fruit and dairy together should you because it creates that
3: oh that's exactly right Um, Ayurveda doesn't like that combination again that's back to the protein and fruit uh, connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, milk is already somewhat sweet, and now we add the sugar, uh, fruit, especially sour fruit, even that much worse. So, a fruit plus uh, milk smoothie is not S- recommended in Any
2: day. kind of fruit, yes. Yeah. So, really, to be on the safe side, it's best to eat fruit alone, isn't it? That's right. Yes. Uh, I'd like to move into talking a little bit about fats and oils. Uh, There's a lot of um, talk about saturated fats, but actually in Ayurveda, um, we like the ghee, which is a saturated fat because uh, it can be heated, can't it, without developing into a toxin which most other oils and so forth can't be heated to those temperatures.
3: Well, that's correct and that was very challenging to talk about Ayurveda because I've been practicing Ayurveda for 43 years and I certainly learned about ghee from my mentor and had used it quite successfully for decades and yet saturated fat had become the enemy in America but I feel validated now because that's all, science has reversed that whole situation and, and uh, saturated fats are now… Um, uh, redeemed in the in the public eye. We don't want artificial uh, saturated fats, trans fats. Those are being taken out of the diet legally, mm-hmm. at least in America. But we everybody knows those are not good to use. The beauty of ghee is that it can be heated exactly as you suggest. Ghee is very digestible. It's essentially tridoshic, but it's the number one remedy for suppressing pitta in Ayurveda. So it provides the types of fats that your body can use to make anti-inflammatory chemicals. And Ayurveda loves the ghee as a base for medicine and a way to – Create uh, or into yes. include in, in food,
2: and it's really wonderful because it it has that uh, that uh, property of being able to really penetrate deep into the tissues, doesn't it? You know, it's good for the skin and for the eyes, and it's really uh, and you can actually also apply it to your body, also. And and what about uh, the different oils that uh, the that should not be heated?
3: Ayurveda uses a wide variety of oils from uh, seeds and nuts. Sesame is uh, a very generic tridoshic oil. Almond is considered to be a superior oil. Coconut. But they uh, the lighter oils like sesame and coconut don't do well with heating. So we have to be very careful if we heat them just a very little bit. A quick shot in the wok for a stir fry is not a big deal. But we're definitely not going to make deep fried chicken in sesame yeah. oil. Coconut yeah. is able to tolerate a bit more Uh, heat. So we would use ghee or coconut for higher temperature uh, cooking. Coconut is anti-inflammatory in and of itself. So that's the other main anti-pitta oil that we use. The main thing about these oils is that Ayurveda over the last 5,000 years has come from uh, a pre-industrial society and people would make their oils on a daily or weekly basis. You'd go to the sesame oil maker and he would have made just enough for a week and you'd take home a cup of sesame oil and use it in your uh, food for that week and then you would go back and he'd make some more so it was fresh it wasn't they didn't have the opportunity to refrigerate it it didn't get oxidized now we're, eat, we're eating sesame oil that was pressed uh, a year ago and it sat in a warehouse and then it sat on the shelf in the store in a clear bottle being destroyed by heat light and air the whole time and then it sits in your cupboard for another six months and it's it's become degraded and it's problematic. So we need to be a little careful in modern times with those oils unless you have the sesame oil maker right down the street like you would in an Indian village.
2: Yeah, but you don't have that problem with ghee, do you? Well,
3: that's <coughs> right because ghee never yeah. goes bad. It's self-preserving. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. Mm-hmm. It never uh, goes rancid and uh, you can use it forever. What you were saying about the ghee, in fact, that it go- it's used in every way you can imagine. Beautiful treatment for the eyes, right into your eyes. For example, you yes. put it up your nose. You can gargle with it. You can—you'll smell like popcorn, but you can have a beautiful <laughs> massage uh, with ghee.
2: Oh, I know. I, I and you can tell people who take a lot of ghee, their eyes shine. It <laughs> clearly uh, penetrates. <laughs> Well, this has been a very full and informative program. Thank you so much, Kelsa, for your uh, participation and your, and sharing with us your vast knowledge of uh, food, especially from the Ayurvedic standpoint. But I know that your experience is is much broader than that. But as you can see, it makes it very easy to evaluate the needs of the body once you understand the unique combination of the elements in the body and how the elements in food affect it. Thank you again, KP, for joining us today. I really appreciate your willingness to share your knowledge. Is there anything that you would like to add to our discussion?
3: Well, first, I'll just thank you for having me. It's absolutely been my pleasure, and it's always nice to be able to talk to the world about Ayurveda in any way. I just want to emphasize that... People often think of Ayurveda as being a, a mystical science that you learn by uh, going to a mountaintop and wearing a loincloth. But there's a saying in Ayurveda where there's mystery, there's no mastery; where there's mastery, there's no mystery. It's actually mm-hmm. really very systematic. You and I, uh, Anne, are both English-speaking uh, Westerners, and we both uh, studied it extensively and uh, are able to master it and learn the details. Mastery is another matter. Maybe that's another few lifetimes to handle that. But we're competent <laughs> uh, in mm-hmm. it, certainly. And so it's a powerful, effective, very, very learnable, and you can learn even a few of these techniques to apply to your daily life. I think it will really add a, a nice new dimension to your overall health.
2: Yes, absolutely. I agree. So even though we have covered a lot of material today, it hardly scratches the surface of all of the information that is available uh, in Ayurveda on food. Food is such a huge part of what we are. We are what we eat, or rather we are what we digest. And if the diet is wrong, medicine is of no use. And if the diet is right, medicine is of no need. There are a number of videos on the website at ATATV.com on digestion and dietary guidelines, blogs and recipes for your review and if you have a recipe or words of wisdom that you'd like to share please do so food is a big subject in ayurveda and in later programs there will be much more information when we talk about daily routines women's health pregnancy and aging today's program has just focused on the basics basics and once we understand then we can apply these to our own lives so, friends, family, and contacts all around the world, this is your host, Anne Holiday and KP Kelsar, signing off with just one thing left to do for your health, and that is to laugh. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now.
1: Thank you for tuning in to According to Ayurveda and Yoga. Be sure to join Ann Holiday again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about Anne, our radio program, and supplemental information about what you've heard today, please visit the website ataytv.com Until our next program wishing you health and happiness
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel